0: good morning again. So before we uh, jump into things this morning, I want to, we're going to have communion a bit later in the service and rather than uh, uh, give those instructions about what we're doing um, and kind of mess up the transition that we go from sermon and to prayer and to communion, I'm just going to tell you what we're going to do now uh, and uh, just so you're ready for it. Um, whether you are in the room or online, you are welcome at this table, whether uh, you're EC- a member of ECC or not. As we did last month, we're going to invite you to come forward um, to receive the elements. We're going to place a communion wafer in your hand. We'll be wearing gloves for that. And then you'll come past that server who will be holding a tray of cups. You'll take your own cup from that tray. As always, you can stand there. There's no rush. We're fine if this takes a little while. And take communion standing there. You can sit on the pew. You can carry the elements back to your own pew, whatever you would like to do for that. If you would prefer, as some do, the pre-packaged communion that we've been using for the last few years, we're going to have those down front as well. Just simply, when your time comes, just walk past this and pick that up and take it back to your seat if you'd like. If you're unable or would rather not come forward, Pastor Kurt will be in the back here and he will be happy to serve you in your pew. He will uh, watch for your raised hand. So if you'll raise your hand up if you'd like someone to serve you and keep it up there for a bit so you can see you. And he will bring those prepackaged communion kits to you. And then parents, we welcome our children to come forward. And if you would like for your children to receive communion, just uh, try to catch our eye and give us a nod to let us know that. If not, we're happy to just kneel down and pray a blessing over each of the children that come our way. And finally, we do ask that everyone coming forward would come into these two diagonal aisles here in a single file. come forward, take the elements, and then return to your seats along those uh, side walls in the back uh, as well. We would appreciate that very much. So for five years in the, almost the very first five years, not quite, but the five years uh, of uh, our early marriage, Kim and I lived overseas and worked with Youth With A Mission In Amsterdam so we've heard a lot and uh, considered a lot in terms of how uh, how what it means to be a good or effective missionary so for example the most effective missionaries acculturate themselves to their new home and its people to the extent that is possible they fit in and they learn the ways of the culture so that they might better reach the people of that culture One of the most famous missionaries to do this, in fact he may be the one that could be credited with starting this whole acculturation trend, was Hudson Taylor, who in the mid to late 1800s pioneered missionary work in China. He was the founder of the China Inland Mission, now known as Overseas Missionary Fellowship, and among CIM's accomplishments were the recruiting of more than 800 missionaries who started 125 schools, which directly resulted in more than 20,000 people coming to faith in Christ. For our purpose, however, Hudson Taylor was known for something quite unusual at the time. He adopted the native dress and customs of the Chinese people, even dyed his hair black and grew it long in the style of Chinese men of that day all so that he might blend in, so to speak. Now, at that time, the missionaries in China lived mostly in the coastal cities, which were seen to be more European cities by the Chinese people. But Hudson Taylor not only adopted the hair and the dress of the Chinese, he moved inland, away from the coast. That's why the organization was named the China Inland Mission. In his biography, Taylor was quoted as saying, Quote, let us in everything not sinful become Chinese, that we may by all means save some. Let us in everything not sinful become Chinese, that we may by all means save some. That is, let us concede to the culture and the people in every way possible, as long as it doesn't conflict with what it means for us to follow Jesus. However, in recent decades, something surprising has emerged within conversations and strategy around missions. It's known as the insider movement. But this time, it's not about outsiders acculturating themselves to a new culture. It's about people who are already within a socio-religious culture who, who come to know Christ and intentionally remain a part of that culture. And even, to an extent, their religion, while learning to follow Jesus... Now, as you can imagine, this insider movement uh, can be quite controversial for some. But more and more scholars have concluded that among certain religious cultures, this is the best way to see people come to faith in Christ. Let them stay within their culture. Let them remain connected to their families and even to their religious community. Now, in case you're thinking to yourself, well, wow, Pastor Stacy is out in left field on these things. ECC's own Alan Busnitz, who serves with Navigators, along with his wife, Mary Beth, uh, sees the insider movement as an effective approach to missions. He and I have had several conversations about this. Case in point, as of 2001, it's a while ago, most recent uh, statistic I could find. I'm sure it's gotten better. As of 2001, of the most respected missions research organizations, the Center for the Study of Global Christianity, reported that 14 million... Hindus, Buddhists, and Muslims have opted to remain within those religions in order to witness for Christ as active believers in Jesus as Lord. That's the most recent statistic. I think after 20 years, we probably have more than that now. Scholar and missiologist Rebecca Lewis defines the insider movement this way An insider movement is any movement to faith in Christ where A, the gospel flows through pre existing communities and social networks, and where B, believing families as valid expressions of the body of Christ remain inside their socio-religious communities, retaining their identity as members of that community while living under the lordship of Jesus Christ in the authority of the Bible. By now you're going, oh, Pastor Stacy made a mistake. This passage isn't about this at all. Um, But I I have an idea, something I want to share with you. What does it have to do with our passage? Whatever you may think of the insider movement, and this may be the first time you've heard of it, It's irrelevant, in a sense, because I'm using it to propose something else that's going on. I propose that the Apostle Peter, in today's passage, is calling upon the followers of Jesus in Asia Minor to become full-fledged members of their own insider movement within Roman society, within its customs and its beliefs, particularly particularly as they pertain to life within a first-century Roman household and marriage. Nobody's leaving yet, that's good. So far, Peter has spoken to the issue of a Christian's relationship to the state and of enslaved Christians and their relationship to their likely unbelieving masters. Now, if you missed Pastor Chuck's sermon last week on that section about enslaved people and their masters, I encourage you to go back and watch it or listen to it. He did a great job with what was a very uncomfortable passage to have to preach. One of the things we need to remind ourselves, and you've heard me say this before, but is that uh, as we look at uh, Peter's uh, passage today in 1 Peter, he is not creating um, rules for households and marriages out of thin air. He is not creating these rules for households and marriages out of thin air. He is using pre-existing, non-biblical Roman codes... For how households were run by the man of the house in that culture, he is appropriating this code or these codes, and he is subverting it. Peter began by talking to the least of these, the least of the least in the household, the enslaved people. Now he moves a bit further up the chain of command, so to speak. Chapter 3 of 1 Peter, verses 1 and 2. Wives, in the same way, submit yourselves to your own husbands so that if any of them do not believe the word they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives when they see the purity and reverence of your lives. In the same way, Peter says. In what way? In the same way as he's just instructed the enslaved people to conduct themselves in relationship to their masters. This is the model wives are to follow with their husbands. When Peter directs his comments to wives. However, these instructions aren't about marriages per se. They are about how Christian women should relate to non-Christian husbands. They are about how Christian women should relate to non-Christian husbands. Wives are to submit to their husbands so that if any of them do not believe the word about Christ, they may be won to the faith by the transformation of their wives. Peter is not telling all Christian wives in all times and all contexts how to relate to their Christian husbands. He is telling first century wives in a first century Roman context how to relate to their non-Christian husbands. Let me say that one more time. It's a mouthful. Peter is not telling all Christian wives in all times and all contexts how to relate to their Christian husbands. He is telling first century wives in a first century Roman context how to relate to their non-Christian husbands. His purpose was missional. To the extent that it was possible these Christian women were to submit to their unbelieving husbands as was expected in that culture so that they might bring them to faith. Peter is also calling upon all Christians in that day to live in submission to these house codes to soften some of the suspicion and hostility with which the non-believers viewed them. If wives came to faith in Jesus, for example, it stands to reason they could no longer take part in the false worship of Roman gods that their husbands worshipped. And again, husbands ruled the house. You can see the tension this might create. It creates problems. It embarrassed the head of household, and it risked greater persecution from society against the church. So Peter does what he needs to do. He teaches them that though they have found freedom in Christ, whenever it did not conflict with their faith, they were to lay that freedom aside and submit to the structures and the expectations of the culture. Even while he does this, however, Peter is subverting all of it from the inside out. He is creating an insider movement. These Christian wives will remain within their socio-religious community and culture, but they will do so under the lordship of Jesus Christ. And as they are transformed and ever transforming, those around them will be one to the faith. And over the long haul, society will be transformed. It's not all that different from what the Apostle Paul says over in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 19-22. to 22. Though I am free and belong to no one, I have made myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. I have become all things to all people so that by all possible means I might save some. These unbelieving husbands will be won to faith by the inner beauty of their, of their wives. Famously, Peter tells women that their beauty is not to come from nice clothes or elaborate hairstyles or the wearing of gold jewelry. He, he does not mean, and I really don't think any of us think he means, that there's something wrong with these things. But we should not adorn ourselves at all. I mean, you think this just happens? <laughs> yeah, that wasn't in my notes, but Whatever. <laughs> Peter simply means that these things that we adorn ourselves with are not to be the most important thing about us. They're not to be the most persuasive thing about us. Don't let your beauty or your attractiveness come from outward things alone, he says. Then, verse 4. Rather, it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. What will draw your unbelieving husbands to faith? What will draw, if we go back to last week, your unkind masters to faith? Will be your transformed and ever-transforming selves. Your gentle and quiet spirit. The same is true of all of us, whether we are married or not. What will draw others to Christ is what has happened and what is happening in our inner selves as we become more and more like Christ. For this reason, the most important thing you can do for, uh, in your life for people who do not know Christ, the most important thing you can do for yourself is to yield to the work of the Holy Spirit and to give yourself to some soul training exercise, exercises for ongoing transformation if you want some help in finding some soul training exercise that is right for you, you can go to the web address that's on your screen ecclife.net soul training now let's skip down to verse 7 where after all these words to everyone else in the house peter finally speaks to the head of the house in that culture and these men have been waiting for something verse 7 husbands in the same way Be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life so that nothing will hinder your prayers. Whereas before Peter was talking to Christian wives married to non-Christian husbands, now he addresses Christian husbands. And what he says is more radical than it might first appear. Though... They would have expected, these men would have expected to be addressed first as the head of household. Peter addresses them last. When he does, he tells them to imitate their wives. Put another way, when it comes to how they should treat their wives, the wives are the example the husbands are to follow. How can I say that? Because Peter says that. His instruction to them begins with the same phrase he spoke to the wives. Husbands in the same way. In the same way as what? In the same way that wives were taught to submit to them, they must be considerate. No, Peter does not use the word submit here. But frankly, I think that's because he's being subversive. He had to choose his words carefully. He had to choose his words carefully. To quote my favorite professor, Fred Holmgren, who just passed away a couple of weeks ago, when interpreting scripture, he would say, you know, uh, we don't want to say too much, but uh, we also don't want to say too little. That actually works in all of life, not just scripture. How do you know that? <clears throat> I use it all the time. But usually I say too much. For Peter to tell husbands to outright submit to their wives would have been to say too much in the context. It would not have been received, and it may have resulted in more persecution. But neither does Peter want to say too little. So he says, husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives. So husbands are to treat their wives in the same way the wives treat them. Wives are to treat their husbands in the same way. Enslaved people treated their masters, and enslaved people were to treat their masters the way Jesus treated those who insulted him, tortured him, and crucified him. Then Peter says this. This is back in chapter 2, verses 21 to 23. To this, you enslaved people were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. Peter has turned the whole House code on its head. Husbands model their lives after wives who model their lives after enslaved people who model their lives after Jesus. When Peter refers to women here as the weaker partner, literally vessel, he likely means weaker in physical capacity, the prevailing thought at the time, but also perhaps weaker in social standing. Peter says that husbands are to treat their wives with respect. Treat them with respect. That word translated as treat is a word that means to grant or to give that which is appropriate, that which is due in a relationship. It often occurs outside of the Bible using the same noun that we find here, respect and honor. So husbands are to give their wives the honor, the respect that is due them, because in Christ, they are co-heirs. In Christ, wives have rights that society doesn't always afford them. The word respect here is the same word the Apostle Paul uses in Ephesians 5.33 when he exhorts, starting with husbands, each of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Peter uses the same word Paul uses when he says that wives should show their husbands respect, and he flips it on its head. Husbands must also respect their wives. It's the same word, honor them, give them the respect that is due them. Both women and men need both love and respect. All of this is a call to mutual submission between husbands and wives. Likewise, over in Ephesians 5, the Apostle Paul says that we are to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. All of us. And we dare not leave out Peter's warning that if these Christian husbands don't do these things, if they don't practice this kind of honor and respect and mutual submission, their prayers will be hindered. Now, I don't even know what that means that your prayers will be hindered, but I don't want it. I want my prayers to be unhindered. Husbands, if you want your prayers to be unhindered, honor and respect your wives. Brothers, if you want your prayers to be unhindered, learn to submit to your sisters in Christ as they submit to you. So as we come to a close, wherever you are on how you have read this passage in the past or how you have been taught it is to be used in life and in marriage or how it plays itself out in your marriage if you're married, I want to present to you a new paradigm for how to read it and as I do I'm aware that this will be really new to some of us and for some of us it might be hard to swallow all I ask is that you hear me out and consider my line of thought I'm not alone in this line of thought Uh, plenty of scholars way smarter than I am hold to very similar views I also want to say that I don't intend any disrespect to anyone who sees this differently or whose marriage falls more in line with a more traditional view of this passage That said, Peter used these house codes in his instruction because it was culturally appropriate. It's how people talked about these things. It was believed that this kind of order in the home was essential for the preservation of Roman society. The man was the head of the household, and it was his duty to run it from the top down with authority over his wife, over his children, over those who were enslaved to him but then Peter changes it from the inside out. Yes, they are to live according to this house code of the ancient Roman Empire, but with some subtle and sometimes not so subtle changes in how Peter constructs his argument, starting with the least, going to the greatest, to whom he speaks first and last in the argument, the words he uses. We who are far removed from Peter's culture and situation originally did not know that Peter was both using an ancient way of talking about these things and subverting it at the same time. So we, and I want to argue, so we mistakenly took it and made it into the biblical model for all marriages in all contexts for all time. See, Peter's words were written for us, but they were not written to us. He wrote them to a specific cultural context in a specific context time in history concerning these things scholar david a de silva warns us this should lead us to take great care in our application of new testament codes of conduct for slaves wives the governed and so on lest we make what was a concession to first century culture into a mandate for 21st century christianity peter's Peter's words were not static They were dynamic. They were a concession, not a mandate. They were on the move the moment they were put onto the parchment. The seeds of transformation and subversive submission were planted within these words, buried deep in the soil in the hopes that they would grow, bear fruit, and transform society from within. Scholar William J. Webb says that Peter's words were actually meant to soften the patriarchy to soften the patriarchy, not to reinforce it. There is a, a redemptive movement that is launched in the way Peter revises and subverts these house codes even as he urges us to sub- or them to submit to them whenever necessary and possible. And besides, hear me out. If we want to lift this passage up as the biblical model for marriage in all time and on, in all contexts, don't we also have to go back to chapter 2, verses 18 to 25, and say, This is the biblical model for slavery for all time and all contexts? We don't want that. The key reason Peter reframes the ancient Roman house code is that believers might be safe from persecution. Free to live out their faith, to stay connected to their families and their communities, and therefore to bear witness to the good news of Jesus Christ. So what are we to do with this passage today? If, if we cannot pick it up and plop it down, as I propose, as a mandate for marriage, what good is it? What would it look like, in other words, in this day and age, if we, the people of God, lived our lives like Jesus, who, when insulted and tortured and put to death, did not retaliate? What if we, like Jesus, chose rather to entrust ourselves to God who judges justly? What if we willingly laid down our lives for one another, husbands and wives, dying to sin, dying to self, and living righteously for the sake of others, just as Jesus did? I invite you to sit with that question, which I've included in our Bible app live event for further consideration we will begin to explore what that might look like in next week's passage. As we consider the sacrifice of Jesus for us and his death on the cross as we kind of close out this time, it is good and right that we move into a time of communion together. Would you join me in prayer we prepare our hearts for communion? Lord Jesus Christ, we thank you for the gift of your word, for the gift of your example, and for all that you have done for us. I pray now, God, that uh, my words, these words of Peter's, would do the work that you want them to do in each of us. I pray that wherever we find ourselves in relationship to these things, that um, Lord, we would entrust ourselves to you we would entrust ourselves to your Holy Spirit. And I pray that you would accomplish what you want to accomplish. I pray that there would be no sense of condemnation, no sense of uh, guilt, no sense of anything that would be a detriment to your community of faith. Would you give us wisdom, Lord, as we walk forward in these things? And now, Lord, I ask that you would indeed prepare us for a time of remembering the sacrifice that you have made for us as we celebrate the Lord's Supper together, as we take part in the bread and the cup and give thanks for what you've done for us. In Jesus' name.